In my conversation with the vice chairman of the Union Township Planning and Adjustment Board, someone who's been working on the Planning and Adjustment Board for over a decade, I learned that the primary role of a Planning and Adjustment Board, at least in this township, is to really interpret the rules that have already been put in place as part of a public process called the master planning process. A master plan is a vision for how the township or city will use their space and land, including zoning, different rules for housing, all those sorts of things. And that process is mandatorily reviewed every 10 years. Outside of that intensive master plan where there are lots of outside experts and other folks brought in to have input. It is a public process which you can have input. The rest of the time they are really there to adhere to that plan and decide when you have to deviate from those strict guidelines, determine if those deviations are acceptable while keeping with the overall objectives of the master plan. Please keep listening to learn more about how planning operates, at least in a small township. Hello, and welcome to 60 Second Democracy. I'm here with Brian Kirkpatrick. Kirk? That's correct, yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, welcome. Really appreciate you being here. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, I always love to start uh, with just giving your, your official title and uh, let, letting us know what you do and who you represent. So I am the vice chairman of the Union Township Planning Board slash Board of Adjustment. And I am effectively just one of the many members of the planning board and board of adjustments. And uh, before we dive into your role specifically, how did you ever get into this role? And for how long have you been doing it? So I, th I think it started with one of the subdivisions, uh, residential subdivisions that were being put in place. And the um, either the planning board chairman or one of the township committee members asked me to review the application um, from an environmental perspective. I put together a two or three page letter and they then put me on the environmental commission, moved up to the chairman of the environmental commission, moved me over to the planning board. I was the chairman of the planning board for a little while, um, moved away for two months, I think. And when I came back, they put me back as the vice chairman. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, you know, prior to this role, what was your kind of professional or educational background? So I am a wildlife biologist by training, um, and I'm an environmental consultant um, by trade. And environmental consultant basically means that I go out and get the regulatory approvals required for a whole host of different development. It started off with getting approvals for residential subdivisions, moved to shopping malls, then maybe 30, 25 years ago, moved more into more public infrastructure, roadways, transmission lines, pipelines, those sorts of things that keep the heat on and keep the lights on. Um, and then for the past seven years, I've been doing large-scale renewable energy projects, um, mostly in upstate New York, did a couple of them down here in New Jersey. One is the largest um, uh, solar facility on a Superfund site in the country. And now I do permitting f uh, to help clean up Superfund sites. Wow. So that is in it. So you have two jobs, essentially. Yes. <laughs> at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least. Uh, I love it. So just kind of in the, in the most basic format, could you explain what your role is and, and what you do? And, and, you know, you can you can expound a little bit about the role of the planning board. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah. you know, again, I'm one of many members of the planning board. We all have an equal vote, and so no one person controls what happens or doesn't happen. But the role of the planning board is to, um, A, prepare master plans, which kind of sets out the vision of what the town looks like, and that's a that's a public process. Uh, it's we're having that going on right now. Um, and then once the master plan is prepared, we pre then prepare ordinances um, that set the the, the guidelines and the, uh, the guide rails on what you can and can't do in the town. Um, 
and while keeping in line with that overall master plan. And where the planning board comes into to play, and more importantly, probably the board of adjustment, is when you have to deviate from those strict, you know, narrow guidelines. Um, we as a board look at the application, look at the pros and the cons of it, and determine if the, the if those deviations um, are acceptable in, in line with keeping with the overall objectives of the master plan. So can we zoom in on the master plan a little bit? Just try to walk us through that, right? What, okay. what is a master plan? Kind of what does it look like? What does it entail? How so, big is it? So the, the master plan is about the size of maybe four phone books. Wow. Um, it includes elements like an open space plan. Um, it includes um, stuff like affordable housing plans. Um, it's Again, it's the blueprint of of what we use then to develop um, the zoning ordinances in terms of lot size, in terms of how many dwellings you can put on a piece of property, where commercial development goes, where industrial development goes. So it's, it's just very broadly that. And I would say that the overall guiding principle of our master plan has been to maintain the rural and agricultural nature of Union Township. And, you know, given the development pressures and sitting on 78, that's not been an easy thing to do. So I can imagine. Yeah. And just to understand, um, one, how often does a master plan happen? And two, who are all the people who are actually involved in creating or contributing to that master plan? So I, I would say it's maybe 30 or 40 people that are directly involved with preparing it. The township committee. And are these both employees and elected officials, or can you put a little color around who's... So Union Township doesn't have many employees. Yeah, I um, imagine. We, yeah. we either volunteer or we volunteer. We have a few paid employees that are very valuable to us. Uh, a lot of it is done by consultants, like a planner, an engineer, environmental consultant, a geologist. All of those folks you know, have a, have a role in it. The master plan is something that's, that is prepared every 10 years, at least every 10 years. So right now we're coming up on the end. Things were moving along fairly well, so we had basically we're going to move our existing master plan forward without any significant changes. Um, Highlands, toward the, toward the end of it, um, proposed that maybe we would opt in to the Highlands uh, preservation area. That kind of threw a wrench in it, so while we're working very hard to meet the statutory um, requirement for re-examining it every 10 years. We do plan on reopening um, the math, re-examining it right after the, so we'll have a, a very short duration between re-examinations. We'll meet the statutory requirement um, for the 10-year re-examinations, and then we'll probably do another re-examination right after the first of the year with the goal of, of updating it one more time within a year or so. So, if I'm getting this correctly, it sounds like it is required by law to update it every 10 years. Yes. Is that correct? Re-examine it. Re-examine it. You don't okay. have to update it. You can look at it. There's a series of steps, but you can look at it and say, hey, everything's working pretty good right now. We're not going to make any major changes. And, and, and that's where we were in, until we started talking with the Highlands. And, and you may not know the answer to this, but is that common across all of New Jersey? Do you think that's nationally common? Like the ten, the 10 year? Yeah. It's a statutory requirement. Okay. Just, I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm just trying to. It's a, they're, ex, they're expensive to do. Yeah. Um, I would imagine. We'll probably, yeah. I think the last round we maybe spent 60 or $70,000 on it. Um, and it was at, even and that's that, the cost of getting the right consultants in correct, and, and people correct. who need to contribute correct. outside of the volunteers. Correct. Correct. Are you are you a volunteer or are you I'm, one of the paid I'm, employees? I'm a volunteer. Excellent, thank you. Uh, okay, so then you you mentioned that after this uh, review period, then you can continue to address other things if you choose between those ten year periods. If we choose, if we choose to, yes. And can you explain for me a little bit? You know, when I was talking to some of the mayors, you know, they mentioned that oftentimes, you know, citizens of the town will will come to the, you know, the mayor or other folks and say, 
what's going on with this development or who's involved in this. And so I guess I, it would be helpful, I think, for, for the audience to really understand if, if, let's say, a large company wants to come into town and build a warehouse – how does that, that would never happen? That would never happen. Yeah, of course. Uh, or or anybody building anything, right? Yeah. But what does that process really look like? How much influence does the town have to to you know reject or adapt to those things, right? If somebody owns that property and they've come in here and they want to develop it, how does that work between the the zoning and the master plan? What does that process yep. look like? Let's so, say. for example, for warehousing. And we recently had a, a warehouse um, application come before us. That that warehouse application was proposed in, I think, an office, um, professional office zone or something to, the, to that effect. Something it was it was a zone that did not include warehousing as a permitted pro, permitted use. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not listed. In fact, we don't have warehousing permitted in any zone in Union Township. And, and that's as a result of the master plans that have been in place. Correct. For decades. Gotcha. So I don't think warehousing has ever been permitted in Union Township. Um, and so if it's not per- permitted, then it's prohibited. Um, so the first step in that is to determine if that different use is then compatible with the master plan. And then there's a public hearing on that. Um we we examine the pros and the cons. There's a positive criteria that we need to examine and a negative criteria. Every development has something that's going to be positive to the town, like it brings rateables to the town. It brings jobs to the town. It, it creates a, a park for, for somebody. And then it has negative criteria. It, it introduces more traffic. It introduces more light. It, it's aesthetically not pleasing. And we have to balance those two things. Um, and then determine whether it's consistent with the master plan or not. And we can imply, apply conditions to to any particular development to help it become more consistent with the master plan. And when you say we, who can allow those changes or put on those stipulations, who are you talking about the, in that, that specific would, for context? The, in, the, for in, the, in the context of a use variance, mm-hmm. it would be the Board of Adjustment. And the Board of Adjustment consists only of certain members on the Planning Board. So the Planning Board includes both members that are, have been appointed by the Township Committee, the Mayor specifically, as well as members of the Township Committee. The Board of Adjustment, though the, mem- the Township Committee members don't sit on that. They have no say, no direct say in use variances. So the elected officials don't have any say on the use variance on the use variance correct gotcha and you know i'm sure this varies but how many folks are actually on the the planning board in total and then who are on the zoning typically we have seven to nine people at each meeting i'm not sure exactly what are what the total number is they've been changing so much i've been losing track of who's on the board and who's not on the board and how many members we have right now I think it's usually around seven or nine members is the total amount. And what percentage of those are are either I think there are employees, two, volunteers, n- or none, elected officials? None of the um, none of the members on the planning board or board of adjustment are paid employees. Um, and I think there are two members of the township committee um, that are on on the planning board, but not board of adjustment. And so with those folks who are appointed to be on the planning committee yes. by the whomever is the mayor um, what is their role versus kind of the the folks who are perhaps in the so also the, the chairman's role um, is to take care of the business end of things paying bills paying a professionals um, setting the agenda um, scheduling the master plan re-examination so he basically organizes everything and runs the meetings. Um, the rest of I'm, I'm the vice chairman. I just fill in the shoes when he's not there. Otherwise, I have no other special powers um, up that that any other member has or doesn't have. So. And so you're saying the chairman is one of the appointed folks? We're all appointed. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You're all appointed. Yeah. Um, 
but you've been a part of this for a long time. So have people continued to appoint you yes, to the board? Yeah, yes. Gotcha. Okay. I, I think the word might be Shanghai sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I suppose if, they, uh, if they've sniffed out yeah. that you know what you're doing, they, they probably don't want a, a bunch of uh, – I mean – I would imagine in, in all seriousness, right, that this is a, these are fairly complex topics and these plans are fairly complex and you're interacting with a lot of experts. So I would, I would assume that it's very valuable to have people continue to operate on the planning board who have experience in, in some of these areas. I would have to say experience more than anything is the, is the most important thing and, and a little bit of common sense as well. I'll say most of the applications that come before us are relatively mundane in that a, a property owner, the, the zone may permit, you know, a thousand square feet of impervious surface on, a, on his lot. And he wants to add a pool that puts him a couple of hundred square feet over, over it. And so it's, it's those sorts of mundane things that occupy the vast majority of our meetings it's maybe once every five, six years that we have a complex application that comes in front of us. But I'm, but, uh, and then I guess only once every 10 years that the, the really serious project comes along of reevaluating the master plan. Is that correct? Well, the master plan is, the, is not a project. It's a, it's a process. So there's yeah. no applicant for the master plan. That makes sense. But yes, the master plan is something that, you know, uh, again, the master plan that we've had has been working with relatively little revision for a couple of decades now, and we were in a position we were pretty comfortable that it could continue to work well. Um, in, uh, you know, after this reexamination, it's really the trigger of um, really taking a close look whether we want to opt in to being you know part of the Highlands or not. That's it, triggering our desire to then open things back up again next year. Can you, just in case somebody doesn't know, what are the highlands and what are we talking so about? So the highlands is sort of like the Pinelands or the Meadowlands. Um, there's a separate governing body. Um, it's a state agency that works under, it's part of the DEP, and they have their own set of rules, what you can and can't do um, in the highlands. The highlands covers a, a chunk of of Hunterdon County, Hunk of Char Morris County, most of Warren County, a big chunk of Sussex County, some of Passaic County. And the Highlands is set up to protect um, the watersheds that contribute to the, basically the reservoirs that feed feed our urban areas. So big big parts of the Highlands are belong to the Newark Watershed or New York Water Company. Big chunks of it belong to the New York Water supply company and they're the watersheds that feed into the reservoir that primarily feed you know for example newark jersey city etc so the purpose is to protect water quality for those reservoirs gotcha and you you mentioned this before when you were discussing the quote-unquote kind of more mundane things yeah. that are coming you know on average what what, what does a what does a week or month look like for the planning committee when you're when you're not in uh, in a in a master planning review? General business reviewing correspondence, looking at any per permit applications that someone may have submitted, and I would say the vast majority, maybe two or three, two to five, two to six applications a month for bulk variant, you know, um, use not bulk for bulk variances. That is, someone needs to do work in a setback, has a little bit more impervious surface. Um, use variances are a little farther and fewer between. Um, but we usually meet, the general intent is to meet once a month to review applications. And the other half of that, if we don't have a, a big workload of applications, uh, it would be a planning, a, you know, a workshop that we'd use to work on things like the master plan, like the open space plan, like the affordable housing plan. And which of these meetings are public versus not public, or how does they're that? all public? I, I wish we could get more people to come out there. We're the second and fourth um, Thursday of the month. We meet at seven p.m. It's open to the public. Um, we ha conduct our meetings. There are opportunities for the public to comment on applications, 
and there are plenty of opportunities for the app for for the public to just make comments ask questions and we, we welcome people in nothing worse at the end of the meeting when you ask if there's any public comments from the public and they're all, and they're all empty chairs <laughs> i i would agree with you there and you know let's say coming from the opposite side so if you're an individual uh how does that process operate, right? So you want to do something on your, you're applying for a permit or you need some sort yeah. of variance for your property. What does that process look like? And at any point, do you get in front of the actual planning board and have a conversation with them? Or You, you do. Your, your first step is you would submit, and before you can even get a building permit, you have to submit an application to the zoning officer. And the zoning officer either determines that it complies with the ordinance or it doesn't comply with the ordinance. If it complies with the ordinance, you then go and get your building permit and you go build what you're going to build. Um, if it doesn't comply, she'll refer you to the board and then that's where the process will get started of whether we determine it's a use variance or whether it's a bulk variance and then the notifications and the type of materials that are required. We really strongly encourage um, anyone that's you know contemplating something that that might be outside the the bounds of the ordinance to come in and just and talk to us about their project um, before they they get too far down the line with engineering and spending money to go out and get quotes and stuff like that because sometimes there's some relatively simple fixes or minor changes that a homeowner or landowner can do to avoid having to come in come in front of us so if i'm hearing this correctly uh, folks can show up at a meeting and you know if there's an open questions part of the meeting they can come up and say hey i'm thinking about doing this i'd love to have a dialogue with you all and, and that can happen yep, at those meetings. yep and typically that's what will happen is at the end of the meeting we'll get a comment from the public that someone is, is proposing a development we'll ask them to develop some sort of sketch something in paper that we can all look at and then we'll schedule an informal hearing with them and there's no cost for the informal for them to come in and just talk about it. That's great. That's helpful. And I want to jump back uh, a little bit on, you know, the the master plan and just ask a question about, you know, how much do any sort of either state or county or, you know, federal laws or ordinances or other things impact you know how does how does the master planning process here interact with other larger entities such as the state like are there a lot of state laws as you know in regards to how land can be used that you have to work with i just want to understand what are the what are the bounds outside of this committee for when you're doing master (laughs) planning right so for the most part state regulations don't play a huge role in the master plan process it does play a very significant role in our affordable housing element. We're required to um, provide, include provisions that uh, encourage or provide opportunities for affordable housing for every um, commercial square foot of commercial development goes in, for every house that goes in, um, the state imposes upon us a, an allocation of affordable units that. Um, need to be constructed, need to be funded. Um, in the past, we've been able to um, allow Phillipsburg or some, you know an urban center where there's already good infrastructure, where they don't have to build sewers, where they don't where this infrastructure and the jobs already are. They've allowed us to transfer some of those obligations to communities that want it. Um, right now, it, basically, your affordable house, housing for the most part has to be done within your within your boundaries i want to come back to that but just to rewind for a second what does it look like to transfer affordable housing you know credits or however you want to put it to fill fills what what did that look like i gotta be honest i can't answer that question right now it's been i've been out of that loop for a couple of years now and the rules on that have changed so i if i said something i would be telling you Talking about rules that I remember from five years ago. So. Sure, no problem. I guess I was just meant like broadly speaking. It's sort of like it, it's, air rights in the city when people are building. Like it's something it, that like you have a requirement and it's 
it's an exchange of funding or somebody says, I really want this and you can kind of ba- pass it basically over Basically, someone them. says, I want this and you provide them the funding to do it. Gotcha. That's because the way if it was, they build yeah. the affordable housing, that comes with federal dollars or state dollars? It often will come with um, some state dollars. It sometimes comes with some in- nonprofit dollars. Um, there's a whole host of different funding mechanisms out there um, to, to help communities build those affordable units. It never seems to catch up. We've yet to find a way to build an affordable housing unit um, that costs the same as what we're what it's allowed to be sold for. So, gotcha. So you're saying, yeah. So let's talk about in in today's case. You said now it's it's more likely to be contained within the town than to yeah, transfer yeah. out. So yeah, let's let's talk about affordable housing so for a minute. What does so, that look like? So typically, we're allowed to collect a fee. And I don't ask me what that the exact amount is, but we're allowed to collect a fee that goes into an affordable housing fund. And then we're allowed to use those funds to do design, to do planning, and actually physically construct affordable housing. So the town develop, receives dollars and, and, in essence, becomes the developer for the affordable housing? We, we can be, or we can contract with a developer and pay that developer to build to build those units fascinating unfortunately it, it just never seems we collect enough fees to actually pay so let's say we're allowed to so you're s- saying the the unit economics of what you take in versus what it costs in yeah, today's we never construction se- we never seem to get there <laughs> so that we could build it without having to um, find another source of funding so in that instance what does the town do if we have you know if there's an obligation to build a certain amount of affordable housing, I don't know if you said based on commercial yep. square footage and otherwise, what happens if you get to a point where you have an obligation? Can you hold that obligation until you have more dollars or does it we're, keep growing? We're, we're still that obligation has been steady to growing slightly. and We've been collecting dollars and th- those dollars for the most part have been waiting for the right opportunity. Wherever we've had the opportunity, we've. Um, We've incorporated affordable housing um, into the development. There have been cases where um, uh, a a landowner has illegally uh, created an apartment or multiple apartments, and part of that their agreement was they they volunteered to make that unit affordable and operate it as affordable. So we gain an affordable unit that way. The the subdivision right down the street from you on, on Race Street we required that developer to build the units rather than make a contribution. My understanding, our ability to tell the, the, the developer to build those has gone away in the current set of rules. But again, I, I want to say I have been out of the nitty-gritty of that for five or six years, and I know the rules have changed quite a bit. And, and who changes those rules? Where do they change? That, that would be COA, the, the state of New Jersey, the Okay, I don't know what COA is. That's right. What is it? Uh, I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what it is. I'm just so used to say housing. Some office. I don't know what the C is. Office of Affordable Housing. <laughs> um, but it, it's run by it's it's a state agency, and so they can tell you whether or not you can demand things from developers or not. They or, set or, they set the rules for what we can demand. Yes. Gotcha. And in the instance of the the new development you were talking about. Uh, you know, can you explain a little bit how that works? Like, is it a, a percentage of the units they're building or how, how it, does that? It's, it's exactly that. It's, it's a percentage of the units. Um, and I believe in the current current standards, we can only charge um, a fee per unit that's developed. Again, I don't think we I don't think we have the ability anymore to require the developer to build the units themselves. So. At one point, you could have said to a developer, and we you, did. You you are building, let's say, sixteen new units. Yep. You have to make four of them affordable. Yep. But at this point, you can't do that. I don't think so. Again, I want to stress: I've been yeah, out yeah, of the n- okay. nitty gritty yeah. of that for four or five, five maybe five or six years now, and I couldn't give you the specifics of what the requirements are. So. But that's controlled by the state agency. It's controlled by the state agency, and we have to pay attention to it when we re-exam- when we 
update our affordable housing component of our master plan. And those things are being done. You know, they were done last year and will be incorporated into our current master plan. And so if you cannot, if you can no longer force developers to build affordable housing outside of the conversion of illegal units, how, you know. So in, in theory, we would then use the money to buy a piece of property. Um, and then typically we would hire a developer to build a particular number of, of units on that property. And then we would make a contribution to that developer toward the reducing the construction cost. That developer may get tax credits, either state or fat, federal tax credits. There may be other incentives that that developer can also gather. Um, and then that developer would build those units. And I imagine this must, I don't know, if, well, what is considered affordable? It's, Does that change by county or zip code it, or anything like that? It's based on the on a set of income criteria. So, and I don't remember what those thresholds are, but let's, for example, let's say moderate income is, is a family of four that had, so there's a bunch of things to go into the formula. Yes, where you are, number of children that you have, number of total number of people in the household. So let's say the income threshold for moderate income family of four is $75,000. And then the amount that they pay is a percentage of that income. And then that's, that's what either sets the rental rate or ultimately the purchase price. So ultimately <laughs> that is catered to each individual purchaser affordable housing ultimately says class of class of people well yeah or, or okay yeah, yeah for 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 about where you are demographically yeah, and income correct, wise correct. this is what's considered a reasonable I'm burden not. for purchasing yep. housing yep. so that's what we give it to you for okay and this may be a guess but do you think there are many towns out there that are in a similar position in essence that they're holding on to a lot of dollars that they have are having a different difficult time allocating because of construction costs i would say none of us are holding on well no no, yeah not on on purpose i just mean you know continuing to attempt to acquire funds it's very it's very difficult to um develop affordable housing in an in an in a economically feasible area fashion particularly in rural areas where we lack um, access to public sewers, public water, et cetera. It costs, it costs a lot more money to drill a well than it does to hook up to a, a system. It costs a lot more money to build a septic system than it does to, you know, tie, in, tie into, a, into, a, into a sewer system. And then, you know, land cost comes into play. Generally speaking, you'll want for a... Generally speaking, housing becomes more affordable the more densely packed it is. Like a townhouse costs less than a single-family home. But on the other side of that coin, if you start packing single-family homes very tightly together and they're not on public water or public septic, then you start to have a negative impact either on the amount of groundwater that's available to feed those wells or the quality of the water that you're drinking. Um, When we did... um, one of our last revisions to the um, our our country residential area, uh, we found that we needed about 8.4 acres of land for every four-bedroom house to not have the quality of the groundwater drop below drinking water standards. Wow! So if you pack them all in, then you can't you you negatively impact the quality. For example. Most, most importantly, groundwater quantity and quality. And, you know, with the instance of that new development, I can't remember, there were 70 houses in it or something? Or Which one was that? On the, at the end of Ray Street. How many, how many units were in that? The, mid- the one in the middle of Ray Street? Right across the street from the, from the, the pond. From the elementary school. Oh, across the element? Yeah. So that, that interestingly started out as a um, senior housing development. And so they had gotten their density based on the, the senior housing. Um, Which and is fewer people. Few, not necessarily fewer people. Um, and they had to build a wastewater treatment plant to do it. Um, and then 
so that it was fewer people and then there was less overall burden on the schools. Um, whereas now that it's young families, our schools are, we're hiring teachers to, to fill the need for the, that was developed, you know, by those folks moving in. So, so did that change from senior housing to, you know, regular residential housing? Is that something that had to go through the planning board or how did that come to fruition? My understanding, my recollection is that the use was permitted that was that they were proposing. Now, initially, they the developer had proposed, um, I forget whether he called them duplexes or townhouse or side-by-sides or something like that. Um, but they specifically were not permitted in that zone. In fact, the way our, the way our zone the way our ordinance was set up is that you're allowed to have a two-family house, but the two-family house has to appear on a single lot. So you can't have uh, you can't have there's there's no there was no ability to have a zero lot line. So ultimately they start they started off with these twins, which had you know they were basically two separate owners of, of the same building, and we we turned down the application because of that, and that development actually was a result of a settlement. Uh, uh, they sued us and we worked it out, and so that's what they have now. And you know, you mentioned all the challenges that are, there, you know, exist regarding groundwater. So it sounds like they had to build a sewage treatment plant because they couldn't have that's correct a ton of septic tanks there. How did they deal with the impact on groundwater? That that went to DEP. It actually goes once you're above once you're above two thousand gallons a day. Um, it's it it leaves the county health department and then the the Department of Environmental Protection reviews that. So the the DEP had full say whether that was um, protective of, of groundwater or not. Interesting. And so I'd love to understand the, the process and, you know, if there's anything sensitive in here, please feel free to stop yeah. me. But, you know, if if a developer wants to make a change that's not permitted on the by the town, they can just sue you and then does it become a battle of how many you know legal dollars the town has or, or how does that how does that work <laughs> um so if we've denied an application mm-hmm. certainly they have the ability to appeal it um and then if if the appeals are exhausted then yeah, it's it's worked out via a, a settlement Pi- the pilot um, truck stop mm-hmm. or I, I should rephrase that pilot travel center um was a, was a result of that in that um, we denied the application, um, and they came back um, and, and, and sued the town to be able to build what they built. And so, if they if they go to those lengths at at that point, you know, you you're kind of just saying we had to settle. What what does that what does that entail? Why does the town have to to acquiesce at that point, or, or not? Or the judge tells us. <laughs> oh. Okay, so it, it goes into some yeah, sort of arbitration. Yeah. You're saying correct, then, correct. Gotcha. I was I wasn't yeah. clear on that. If it was just sort we can of like, s- we can settle without a judge actually making the decision, but ultimately a judge would decide whether it gets built or not. So, and this is a local judge of some sort, or where does this go? I think it's a state ap- appeal up the, at the state level. It's, it's definitely not definitely not a local judge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's fascinating. Um, what is what is something that uh, you've been proud of that you of the work that you've done on the planning board that you you think the folks who work in the planning board are, are excited about? You know, we've we've preserved an awful lot of open space um, through both the environmental commission, the planning board. You know, getting developers to set aside land as public open space. I would fathom to guess that close to maybe even more than half of Union Township is is public open space at this point. If you can take take into consideration Spruce Run and the wildlife management area and all of those, we're probably approaching 50% of the town that's preserved in one way or another. Um, You know, when Pilot came in, it it looked, their initial development looked an awful lot like the Pilot that's in Bloomsbury. Um, which is not particularly attractive to young families. But when I go there and get gas and I see families sitting out on the picnic table, 
you know, the outdoor tables, having a subway, that's kind of satisfying. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not what we wanted in terms of traffic. It's not all of what we wanted in terms of what, it, what we had hoped it would look like. Um, but again, to see families sitting out there having a, a meal is, is kind of satisfying. <laughs> Something that is, is yeah. I suppose, usable to the local population, yep. not yep. just people passing through for gas. People seem to be pretty happy with the quick check. Um, I kind of like the bagel smith better, but that's just because I've been here for so long. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it, it gives, you know, we still have really great water quality. We still have a great quality of life here. Um, and all of those little things that we do to protect um, groundwater, surface water, etc., those are the things that make me pretty happy. It, it's a you know it's a great community to live in, great people around here, great looking, great neighbors, virtually no crime. <laughs> all a lot of that has to do with you know the the master plan and how how the town as a whole envisions what our town should look like. And, and being able to have a say in that has been very rewarding. And then finally to help out a homeowner, you know, that that has this, bought this house that he had no idea that he was only allowed, he wasn't allowed to put in a pool anywhere, and then figuring out a way so he can put his pool in without having um, a negative impact on his neighbor. So those even those little mundane projects are satisfying because we've been able to help an individual homeowner enjoy his or her home a little bit more i love that um are there any things that or or i guess any abilities that the planning board has that you think are are almost excessive or or too much things that you shouldn't be able to do that you we're very a we're very transparent everything is appealable and if there's anything that we do that is beyond what we're allowed to, a judge is going to say, no, no you got to go back and, and rethink that one. So, so I, I would say no. And are there any abilities that you wish the, the planning board had that you, that you don't? Uh, in meetings at 10 o'clock instead of 1 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Are you saying some of the meetings when, when – people get excited or, or they've, that you... they've run to a one o'clock in the morning yes yes that's uh, that's late for a volunteer role yes if you're not a, a firefighter or something yeah. um you mentioned this a little bit earlier but if you know if you were speaking to somebody you know in general who wanted to be a part of their town planning board what specifically are the skills and experiences you think somebody needs to to join this in particular really simply common sense um, and and the willingness to learn the the rules um, and be able to apply those rules dispassionately it's very easy to get hooked get tied in with whether you personally like or dislike a project um, and let that influence your ability your ability to you know interpret what the the ordinance requires or or doesn't require so just common sense fairness um and the willingness to learn and listen and do you think a lot of folks uh you know you certainly have a background that was highly relevant to the environmental commission do you find that a lot of folks who get involved either have experience with construction or architecture or other things like that or it's so you know i think we have a professional planner on the board we have a civil engineer on the board we have a professional surveyor on the board. Um, we have a guy that runs a tree service. I think we have a guy that runs an excavation company. So it's a full cross-section of, of skill sets and experiences, which is, which is perfect because then you're getting that full range of, of views, both with you know just common sense as well as the technical expertise to be able to call call the you know the, the professionals bluff if they are going off track with their testimony that sounds helpful and is 
is the general ambiance of the of the meeting like is everyone pretty on board with that sort of public service mission and people get along is I, don't, it, is it I don't think anyone is there for the power trip we're, we're all there um, because we love our community um, because we want to help our neighbors it, it I, I have to say we're all there as a public service to, to try and do good for Union Township and, and keep it you know a very very nice place to live love to hear that you mentioned this earlier about the meetings are there any other ways that if folks want to learn about how to get things done in their town or what's going on are there any other forms of communication I'm sure meeting notes get updated you know up uploaded somewhere but what are the what are the ways people can uh, so stay in I, touch I, I believe the township committee, maybe even the mayor, has put together had put together a few like newsletter types things in the past. I think they still may be on our website. Um, I hate to say it, pick up and read the ordinance, <laughs> read the master plan, um, and the master plan is available on the Union Township website. It's either available on the website or a hard copy is available with either the clerk or the planning board secretary. And I'm assuming that would be common across the the country that anyone could access the master plan of yes, the area yes, they live in. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's good to know. I'm not sure how many people do that, but <laughs> should they be interested, it's nice to know that that's available. Um, what has surprised you most about this versus perhaps what you expected when you were first coming into it? And I know that it's it's been a while, it, but it, it's hard. It's hard to say because I spent most of my time on the other side, making presentations to the planning, to planning boards, to board of, boards of adjustment, to DEP, to the regulatory agencies. So, for me to be the regulatory agency, it was a that was the biggest shift for me. And 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 again, just just divorcing myself from whether I particularly like a project or not um, and looking at it dispassionately in relationship to what the rules are because again it's I think for all of us it, it would be tempting if we didn't like a project to vote no on it um, even if it complied with all the rules and likewise it would be it would have been tempting to vote yes on something we liked and didn't comply with the rules <laughs> But I would imagine in either of those scenarios, then people either would come back through the appeals or yep, you might yep, get caught yep, up later yep, because it didn't fit yep, within yep, the correct. plans. Yeah. Um, what is the most common misconception you encounter uh, when people, let's say, find out you're involved with the planning board and, and they're curious or that you hear people, I what they think I, about the planning board? I have no ability to tell them what they can and can't build. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think the impression is that we um, might be arbitrary and like, well, why can't I do this? My neighbor did it. So that's kind of surprised me in that, you know, trying to help people understand that we are there to interpret the rules that have been made as part of a public process. And there's nothing that we're doing that is either bias toward or against any one particular property owner. And I suppose that makes sense. As you said, if the master plan is there, it's in existence. Yep. A bunch of people have at least have the ability to participate in that process. Once that is set, you are just following that plan in essence. Correct, correct. Uh, if you had the ability to wave a magic wand and, and make any change in the town vis-a-vis -vis, uh, your role do you have anything you would want to do i like this town i gotta tell you <laughs> I, I like this town <laughs> i'd like our taxes to be a little bit lower but they're fairly low you know in the grand scheme of things as they are um would i like to have even more open space than we have now sure um but you know i've lived here over 30 years now and i, I like it here <laughs> So it's it's hard to say 
Okay, that's great. I know maybe more mountains in it. We have a farm up in Vermont that's my second second happy place to go. So, I, I would love some more mountains around here. <laughs> and I think we we covered this about uh, other folks who might be interested in, in this role. Um, is there anything you think I did not cover so far that uh, you think is important? I, I don't know. Can you role? twist people's arm to come out to the meetings and participate? <laughs> well, that is always one of my yeah. hopes through this podcast, that people will become more interested and more engaged. And, and if they have feelings or interests that relate to yeah. – to whatever it is in their town that they this provides them with a little bit of an avenue and a, and a warm welcome into that space by having a little bit of understanding yep. as to how to engage with it because I think uh, you know many folks and often myself and many times don't know where to start with these things you know many town websites are not very easily navigable the descriptions for things aren't always there so I'm, I'm hoping to break down some of those barriers and, and make it a welcome welcome space for people to jump in. All I can suggest is come out to our meetings. If you have questions, just feel free to ask. Listen, you know, sit through a couple of, of, of hearings, and you'll see what, what goes on. You'll see the back and forth between the applicants' professionals and our professionals in terms of how we review things and the criteria we, re, we review. You know, we have long checklists that, that tell you exactly what you need to do and we go through those checklists and you know there are some things that you don't need and we'll var you know we'll waive that checklist item or we'll need more information on a particular but just come out and listen to a few applications and you'll i think you'll see that it's very transparent and that it's it's just interpreting the rules well brian this has been wonderful i really appreciate your time and i hope everyone learns a lot about you know, the planning process, at least. So do I. So do I. And welcome to Union Township. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another podcast of 60 Second Democracy. I hope that you enjoy what you're learning here. I know I'm learning a lot. Please leave comments, subscribe, and in general, let me know whether you're enjoying this, whether you have ideas for other ways to approach this, or other folks to interview to learn more about what's happening in your town or your democracy. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on all platforms where podcasts are available. Thanks for listening.